All right, so Exodus. We covered Exodus chapter 1. We covered Exodus chapter 2. Tonight we are in Exodus chapter 3, all right? I was talking to a gentleman last night. He asked me, as a pastor, how do you come up with what you're going to preach about every week? I said, it's simple. I start in a book, and I go all the way through that book. And that book uh, leads me to where, uh, where God has intended his word to go. And so as we follow through these chapters, um, usually uh, I try to do it verse by verse. Sometimes we do it chapter by chapter. Uh, Isaiah, we put some of the chapters together. But basically, as you read along, as we work through these books, I hope you're studying them, looking at them, and uh, certainly making your way through the book as well. Exodus. What do we learn about Exodus so far? Anybody want to give a summary? And by the way, I'm not so concerned about the live stream. So if you guys want to share, if you guys want to talk during this thing, we don't have to wait all the way to the very end. So uh, what did we learn about Exodus last week? Anybody want to share anything they learned about Exodus? Moses' birth. So we met a person, right? Moses, who's pretty much not only the main character, I would so to, say, uh, so to speak, of Exodus, but he's also the writer, right? He's the author of Exodus. So he's, not, he's the author, and he's also the main, one of the main characters. Uh, and we did talk about how he was born. He was born, and uh, at that time, all the male babies, Hebrew babies, was to be killed, uh, thrown into the river. And uh, his mother, anybody remember his mother's name? Come on, Bill, your time to shine. Jochebed. 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 Oh, yeah, he talks some funny language. Jochebed. All right, sorry. Anyways, so that was his mom, made a basket, put the pitch in it, right? Bill pointed out that was atonement, right? Same kind of pitch that was found in the ark. Same kind of pitch when we talk about the blood of Christ. Put him in that little ark, bulrush down the, uh, put him down the, the river. His sister was there. He was taken into Egypt. He was taken into uh, by Pharaoh's daughter, taken into um, their culture. He was raised, and his mother was able to take care of him until he became of age. And then uh, in Exodus chapter 2, we find out that he didn't stay there. Obviously, he wanted to identify with his people. He uh, was out visiting or looking uh, at these uh, Hebrews, these Israelites, his brethren, and uh, one of the Egyptians was um, beating uh, one of his brethren, and so he took a life in the midst of that. I don't know how that, exactly how that happened, doesn't say, but in the process of him defending his brother, this person died, so the next day or two days later, he came back. They said, are you not the guy that just killed one of them? We see you. He pretty much knew he was a marked man. At that point, the scholars believe he was about 40 years old. So he fled, and he fled to a mountain. When he fled to that mountain, he came alongside and met this, uh, these uh, she shepherds coming or some of the shepherds' family coming to get the water. Uh, he began to help them. They went back to the father. Father said, send, ha, uh, go find them, have them come. Let's uh, give them food. Let's, uh, you know, find out who he is. And then he ends up marrying the daughter. And so now Exodus chapter 3 opens up. And Moses is in the mountain. 
Uh, and so, verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, I've said this before. It's always very important to remember this. The Old Testament plays name games with you, okay? All right? So, uh, just when you think you get a name down or a character down, it changes, all right? So, uh, somehow, someway, Moses and Jethro was related. Now, here it says his father-in-law. Later on, you're going to find out that his father-in-law was actually named Rule, right? So, Jethro could have been his brother-in-law. Maybe a heritage of a name passed down from his father. Um, Because later on, as you know, when we get to the story of him and Miriam, his sister, who Jethro would have been um, married to. So, anyhow, a lot of different things there. But somehow... He was distantly related. He also had married into the family as well. So Jethro, his father-in-law, later on could be possibly his brother-in-law by that same name. So he was a shepherd tending the flock, a priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, it gets really, really interesting quick here. So Moses, who knew better, right, as a Hebrew, was on the backside of this mountain. He had went from the highest in one of the palaces, right, to a lowly shepherd, all right? Pretty humbling, right? Uh, he pretty much went from top to bottom. Um, Egyptians, Egyptians were trained, and they also, in their culture, thought of sheep herders or shepherds as worse than slaves, basically. They, they pretty much was the lowest of the low. And so, um, as you can imagine, he went from the palace uh, there with Pharaoh to the backside of a mountain uh, tending sheep. And so uh, he was there, obviously, for a long period of time. Even here, most people believe he was 80 years old at this time. So 40 years old when he left, 80 years old when chapter 3 opens up. So he was there for 40 years. And he had an interesting uh, career or job tending these flock. He was, uh, uh, Jethro obviously was not a believer. He was a pagan, uh, a priest of the Midianites and Midian. And so um, he was part of this, not even connected with God in any way, um, so to speak. He was on the backside of this desert, but he came looking for water, most likely, because it's been hard for uh, people to provide water for their sheep and for their flock. And so he uh, went to the backside of this desert. Uh, which is interesting because this would have been the side that would have um, been uh, visible to them when they were in the wilderness later on when they lead them out into the wilderness. And so it's interesting he calls this Horeb the mountain of God. Most scholars, most of them believe this is Mount Sinai as well. So sometimes you hear it called Mount Horeb, sometimes you hear it uh, Mount Sinai. Some people explain that. As saying, you know, Horeb could have been the whole mountain range. Sinai was the one mountain. Others would say maybe it was just the way they, one uh, of the Midianites called it Horeb and the, the Israelites called it Sinai. You know, just different culture, had different names for different, same place, different names. But I think if you read the story as it plays out, I think you're going to come to the conclusion that Horeb is the same place where Moses met to get the Ten Commandments. So we'll talk about that later when it comes up. But I just wanted to put that thought in your mind when you think about this. So mountain of God, come to Horeb, 
Then verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So, pretty interesting to me. This would have been a pretty crazy experience, but evidently uh, in the desert there was some types of bushes that would, uh, where I come from, we called them tumbleweeds. <laughs> that's, in, that's in Arizona. So some sort of bush that was very dry, parched. The heat would get so hot they would instantly become combustible and they would literally catch on fire and burn. And the problem with that is this one burned not just for a short period of time as you could only imagine an old Christmas tree or something going up in flames really, really quick and then going out really quick. It was not only did it burn once, but it kept burning. And through that midst of this bush and midst of this burning that was not consumed, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, anybody want to take a shot at what they think the angel of the Lord is here or who the angel of the Lord is? What's that? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Angel of the Lord. Interesting phrase. Bill says God. Anybody else got any guesses? So, Gabriel, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. True. Yep. You said Jesus? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who, when you break down the language of this, Bill had a good point of this, and my, my dad as well, talking about the capital L. Obviously, this carries deity with it. Angel just means messenger. And so a messenger of the Lord or messenger of the Lord, um, obviously this could not be God the Father. No one has looked upon God and lived, right? That's what it says in Scripture in Timothy. And so how did God communicate uh, to his people prior to Jesus Christ in the flesh? We see Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, right? Jesus did not come to exist at the birth of Christ, right? A lot of people think, oh, that's when Jesus came onto the scene when he was, you know, born as a baby. Now, Jesus was on the scene long before that. He said, well, prove it. Well, Genesis, let us make man in our... Who's the us? All right? The triune God, right? The Trinity of God. Now, I, I can't explain the Trinity. Dr. Adrian Rogers had the best quote about the Trinity. He said, try to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. All right? Deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul, all right? So we can, we can try to understand it. We can try to use references or phrases. But what we know about the triune God or the Trinity of God is three and one, one and three. Yes, sir.
So, yeah, so as you work your way through this, you see, message to the Lord, this is what, when you talk to people who study the Bible, they call this a theophany, all right? Theophany. More specifically, some people call it a Christophany, all right? They want to be very specific and not just say God appearing, but Christ appearing pre-incarnate. Christophany or a theophany. This is God when he appears, and there he was, this messenger of the Lord, as Bill, others have pointed out, most likely, uh, well, is Christ. And so this phrase is also used in Judges a couple times with Gideon. We see this, the angel of the Lord came, obviously same type there. And also another time in the Old Testament as well, it obviously carries that, talks about that. So this angel in the midst of this fire, this burning bush, it was not consumed. But look at verse 3, Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. All right, verse 4, so when the Lord saw that he took a side to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. So, as we have already talked about, pretty much nails this down, verse 4, God called to him in the midst of the bush, so it was definitely God, right? We at least know that, most likely Christ in the midst of this. And so he calls to Moses, this bush was there, lights itself on fire, it is not consumed. Moses is piqued by this interest. He says, I'm going to turn aside and see a great sight, why this bush did not burn. Now, I figure that I've, I find this fascinating because if you think about this, for 40 years, Moses was serving God and he was wanting to redeem his people. And as we read in Hebrews, that he chose sufferings of this world rather than their pleasures or riches of Egypt, right? So as he would have been seeking God, this would have been, God would have been working in his life, so to speak, or he would have been at least in fellowship with God. Then 40 years on a mountain with a pagan priest and a family that had nothing to do with God, and all of a sudden he sees a, burn, a burning bush, a bush that is not consumed, and I think this was Moses' recognition of seeing the power of God again. I think this was the moment Moses thought, hmm, this is not normal, right? This is God speaking. This is God trying to get my attention. This is something that I know of that is not of this world, obviously, right? It was a sign. It was a wonder. It was a miracle. And, and Moses, I think, by him turning aside to at least recognize this work of God, look at verse 4, what it says. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, I find that so fascinating, right? You know why I find it so fascinating is because I wonder if Moses would not have slowed up with that, right? What if... What if Moses would not have turned aside to look at this sight, but he continued to run from God? I think this was his turning moment. I think this was a time where he was acknowledging this God and acknowledging God once again in his life. And he saw something he hadn't seen for 40 years. And he thought, okay, this is a sign from God. And when God saw that, 
right? Look what it says. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to look. To me, this is a clear sign of Moses changing direction in his life. I think this is Moses showing the availability to God. And I think God looking through this and seeing Moses turn aside thought, not he didn't think, but Moses thought, this is God, and I want to see it. Maybe he never had that desire before. But let me tell you, just as anybody that's going to be used by God, when God puts us on the backside of a mountain, after a certain point in time, you are ready to hear from the Lord again, all right? You are ready. It humbles you. It brings you to a point of despair. It brings you to a point, to an end of yourself. And I think this was a recognition of Moses saying after 40 years, he had not seen any part of God or any movement of God or any thought of God. I, I wouldn't say thought. I probably, probably he thought of God a lot. But I think he thought in his mind, here's the sign. This is God. This is my opportunity. This is something that I haven't seen or heard in 40 years. And as he turns to the Lord, he is now ready to be called by God. Now, he's going to give some excuses, but don't we all, right? But I think this is, this is the preparation of his heart. And I want you to remember this because sometimes in life, you feel like you're on the backside of a mountain. All right? And you're not going to hear that. It's your best life now, okay? But let me tell you, as a Christian, you're going to do things. And things are going to happen in your life. You're going to go through things, and you're going to feel like God is a million miles away. And you haven't heard from God. You haven't seen God. And far as you are concerned, God doesn't want to see you, nor does he want you to see him, right? Like, he is so far from you. And I think Moses had gotten to this point to where he was so humbled and so far from God that at the moment he had this sign, he turned and God called to Moses. And I find this so fascinating. It says, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Wow. Now, I'm going to tell you, this blows me away. It blows me away because here is God who did not need Moses, right? God didn't need Moses. God could have done this himself, but God chose to use Moses. God chose to use Moses in such a way that when he saw Moses, he's going to restore Moses and he's going to use Moses in a mighty way. And this call comes from the bush. It wasn't Moses calling on God. It was God calling on Moses, right? God was prepared and he was going to call this man. And when he called him, he didn't say, you murderer, murderer, right? Think about Moses' conscience before God. He probably thought, whew. I really messed up. Why would God even want nothing to do with God wouldn't want anything to do with me. Maybe he, he didn't even call him failure, failure, right? He didn't call him stupid, stupid, right? He called him by his name. He called him by his name, Moses, Moses. And as far as we talk about God, the glory of God, the midst of this burning bush, this is almost one of the most powerful things you see out of this. That God is a personal God. He's a God who is not only delivering a nation, 
that is going to deliver the world from sin through their seed, through Jesus Christ. But in that process, he still has relationships with people. God is a relationship. God, he, he wants that. He desires that. And he calls Moses, Moses by name. And for us, so many times we think that God is so far from us and we think that God wants nothing to do with us and we think that God knows nothing about us. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you think about God and his children, how well God knows them, he is not just transcendent, but yet he is imminent. He is, he is in our very midst of who we are and where we live. And he looks to Moses just to say, I haven't forgot you, Moses, right? It's been 40 years, but Moses, Moses... And, and I just, I just am blown away by his response, right? Moses says, here I am. Here I am. That does not sound familiar, right? This does sound familiar, right? Study through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, you remember? The call goes out, who's going to go for us? Whom shall we send? And who shouts out, here I am, right? Isaiah. He's like, here I am, God. Send me. I'll be the one, right? And you know, in your life, have you said, here I am to the Lord? I mean, it, I, it just, the amount of people that I know that has given up on God's purpose and will for their life because they had a failure in their life is just, it blows my mind sometimes. Because God's never done with people. He's never done with, no matter how bad we mess up, God's always a restorer. He's always one who uses broken people. And Moses was here. He's 80 years old. And he has been 40 years on the backside of a mountain. God calls out to him. And he has enough faith just to say, here I am, Lord. Right? Like, here I am. I know this is you calling my name. And I am willing and able. I am your servant. Man, what a, what a remarkable remarkable answer and uh, you know it's a challenge for me in my life because you know there are there are only a few specific times in your life when God calls you like this and, and many times when God calls to people like this their lives are never the same never the same I can remember when Tucker was born just as sure as clear as a bell that I knew that God had called me to be a father and I knew that my responsibility was to raise my children in the nurture and admission of the Lord. And I knew it. And I could not deny that responsibility. And I knew it just as sure as I knew it. And have I messed up? Oh, absolutely I have messed up, right? I mean, we, we, we have, I've made plenty of mistakes. But I could tell you that call on my life has changed me forever. It was no longer what I wanted what I desired, what, what was best for me, it was now, how can I raise this child? How can I raise my children? And then you surrender your rights to that for those kids. And it's, it's a time you'll never forget, even as a father. Sometimes for us, as going into ministry, we have the same one. You get a call from God, and God calls you in such a way. For me, like I said I was talking to a gentleman last night, and he asked me, how did you know you were supposed to do what you're supposed to be doing. I said, well, I did know originally, but I think I've just been too dumb to quit since then, all right? <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. I said, it, it happened in a moment in time 
when I knew there was no denying that God was calling me to do that and that forever changed my life, forever. And, and I think Moses knew this was his time. This was the time that God was calling him, and instead of running in shame or hiding from God, he turned aside to see this. God called to Moses, and he shouts, Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Now, what happens after that? Look at verse 5. So then he said, this is God talking to him, Do not draw near this place. <laughs> All right? Like, cool your jets, Moses. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Wow. I mean, this is a moment of meeting with God. There are so many scholars believe that the symbol of him taking his sandals off was a symbol of submission. That servants were, were not allowed to wear shoes. So basically what God was saying, okay, if you're my servant... And I'm calling you, don't draw near this place. Take your, take your sandals off. Complete submission to me. Because when you come into this agreement with me, you're standing on holy ground, right? This is not just a commitment to man. This is not just commitment to someone contractual agreement. This is holy ground. This is, this is in God's territory. And, and I think many times when we deal with God, we don't take into account the seriousness of when we deal with God sometimes, right? I ever see people when they come up with a jailhouse confession or maybe a when you're in a really tough, tough time, and you say, God, if you ever get me out of this, I will never do that again, right? And next thing you know, as you get bailed out of that situation, you're doing it again, right? <laughs> Listen, that that covenant you make with God, that commitment you make with God, what God is telling Moses here, listen, there's no backing down here. This is different than anything you will ever pursue in your life, Moses, because this is the work of God, and I am the holy God. Take your shoes off, for you are standing on holy ground. Look at verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look upon God. Man, I mean, to me, when you read through this, it's just a remarkable experience. But first, God tells him, I'm the God of your father. We know that Moses' father was a Hebrew. He had taught him. He knew God. And not only that, he was the God of Abraham. We had, we're going to study a little bit about Abraham this Sunday because Romans talks about him in Romans chapter 4. But when you think about the God of Abraham, they would look to him as the first covenant of God with Abraham, then the God of Isaac, which was Abraham's son, then the God of Jacob, which becomes Israel, uh, which is the 12 tribes, right? So he's saying, I am that God. I'm the father of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what he's saying is, I keep my covenant. I am that God. I, I keep my covenant. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Look at the humility of Moses. He was afraid to look upon God. One of the scriptures says about Moses that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. I think part of the reason is you understand, as you go through Moses and you talk about his life, you understand how he was humbled and why he was humbled. And now when you see this full on, he's saying, I can't even look God in the face. That God would call me and the holiness of God the faithfulness of God, 
basically Moses is saying, I'm not worthy, God. I'm not even worthy to look into your eyes. Now, I've got to remember something. Up to this point, God had not spoken to the nation of Israel for 400 years. 400 years since God had spoken to them or led them. So through this process of this new Pharaoh coming along, then becoming slaves and being enslaved, and also going through the process of Moses, like God actually speaking to the nation as a whole, 400 years, then Moses leaving backside of the mountain for 40 years, all of a sudden this God shows back up and says, I'm this God who keeps my covenants. And Moses is like, hold on a minute, I'm hiding my face. I was, he didn't even want to look upon God. Look at verse 7, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So he comes and now he says, listen, I heard the cries of my people. And we talked about this last week. God always hears our prayers. He hears our cries. He sees our tears. One of the things that I read uh, in one of the commentaries that mentioned that over in Revelations, it talked about uh, God bottles up the tears of the martyrs. And think about that. God bottles up the tears of his servants and those who are suffering from God. And this is the way he looked to the nation of Israel. They were in sorrow, they were in pain, and he was, they were calling out to God and had risen to the occasion where God had heard their cry, meaning that he's ready to act upon it. Remember last week I said that the scripture said God remembered his covenant. He didn't remember like he forgot, right? Really what it means is he was validating it, he was acting upon it. It was time for him to take action towards it. So here we see this working out here. He's saying, I've seen this oppression. I've heard their cry. I know their sorrows. Then look at verse 8. So I, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, right? So... When we talked about the nation of Israel, we talked about the promise of a nation. Now we're seeing the promise of the land, right? And we also know about the promise of the seed. When you talk about the nation of Israel, you talk about those three things. The promise of a nation, the promise of a land, and the promise of a, uh, of a seed. Obviously, through Hebrews and through Romans, we're learning, we know the seed is Jesus Christ, right? Now, here comes this, this promise of the land, He's saying, I will deliver them out of. And I find this so interesting because does it say Moses will deliver them out of it? No, he says, I will deliver them out of it, right? Moses will be the tool, but ultimately, who is the deliverer? God is. He's the deliverer. And so many times when we are called to do something, we, we, we want to act or we act in our own understanding, in our own strength, in our own way, when it's not us who is doing it anyways, right? It is God, and it is Him. He doesn't quiver. He doesn't shake. He, doesn't, he says, I have come down, and I'm going to deliver them. Now, to everyone else who was on the face of the earth, that would have been a joke, right? How could this possibly happen? How was this going to happen where the nation of Israel was going to be able to be delivered out of the hand of Pharaoh? Well, there's only one solution. God himself is going to do it, right? And how many times do we look to things in our life and we say, 
it's impossible. It can't be done, <laughs> right? Man, if, if you don't get anything out of the book of Exodus, it is that whatever God wants to be done, he's going to do it, right? He can do it. He is able. He is able to do it. He will do it, and it's going to happen. And he says, it's going to happen just as sure it is, and I'm going to give them this land, and it's flowing with milk and honey. It's the place that they're going to go. It's going to be a, a good and large land. And also, this is one of the most fertile grounds of the Fertile Crescent over there. It's going to be all part of that, and it's all going to be theirs, and I am the one who's going to do it. Verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression of which, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So, God says, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to use you to do it, right? <laughs> I'm going to use you, Moses. I want you to come. Come now. Like, here's your opportunity. I want you to come. This is the call of God. This is God saying, this is your mission. This is your calling. This is what I want you to do. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you're going to bring my people out of Egypt. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And Moses' great response from humanly speaking, right? He's like, God, did you forget that I got ran out of Egypt? Right? Did you forget that I am nothing, right? Did you forget that I am despised and hated by the Egyptians? Did you remember that no one would want me to come or do that? How in the world would I be able to? And obviously Moses looked to his own strength and his own power. And every time God calls you to do something, if you try to do it or you think about it in your own strength and your own power, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen because it's not up to you. It's up to God. But Moses, looking at himself, says, I'm a failure. I have failed. God, you can't send me. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He's going to have some more excuses. But how many times in our life has God called us to do something? We'll say the same thing, right? Who am I, God? I can't do that. Look at verse 12. So he said, I will certain, certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Wow. So if we tie that back into verse 1, we were talking about Mount Horeb. What, what mountain does that sound like, right? It comes right back full circle. So as he looks at him, he says, listen, the very place that you are now here with Midianites and pagans will be the same mountain you're going to come and meet with me for the people of Israel. And the Ten Commandments are going to come, and I'm going to meet with you on this mountain, and I'm going to bring you, bring them out of Egypt. This is going to be a sign to you, Moses, but don't underscore, I mean, don't forget to underscore the first thing he tells Moses when he gives him an excuse. I will certainly be with you. Has God ever called you to do something beyond yourself, right? Ever called you to do something where you thought, there's no way I could do that. Do you know what makes the difference between you and every other person on the face of the earth that doesn't have a relationship with Christ? You know what makes Christians so much different is that we have the presence of Christ with us, right? 
Man, when, when God says he never leaves us nor he never forsakes us, when he says he's with us and every spot that our foot trod, just like Joshua, he is there for us, he is there with us. Listen, to do the will of God, you have to have the presence of God with you. And when you have the presence of God, you have the power of God, right? The first promise is the presence of God. I will certainly be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, you were in PE. You broke up into groups and you picked teams, right? You had two captains, right? And the captains will go pick for this person, that person, this person, that person. Well, if it had anything to do with running or basketball or anything like that, I was always the last one picked. You know why? Because couldn't run very fast, all right? All right, so, so as, they, as they would come down to the end, they'd be picking and picking and picking and picking. And I knew it would be the last one, right? The last one to be picked. This is what Moses is saying here. He's like, God, I, I'm like the last one you should pick. There's no way but what God is saying. I'm the captain, and I'm going to be with you. You're on my team, 100%. And what I'm going to do, you're going to do too. And I'm going to be, you're going to be, I'm going to be with you. And as you, as you accomplish this, it's not going to be what you can do or who you are. My presence will be with you. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of our fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall, what shall I say to them? Pretty good question, right? Who is this God? Who shall I say sent me? Who shall I say that sent me? Someone who's failed. Someone who they rejected. Someone who has no strength or power. That they hadn't even seen in 40 years. Who, when I go to him, what should I say to him? Who, who sent me? Verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, uh, the Lord God of your fathers and the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Verse 17. And I have said, with, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice. You shall come, you and the elders of Israel and the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give Hit this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. I mean, what a story, right? But go back to verse 14. I'm going to end with this. 
Moses is asking, what shall I say? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. You know, this is the first mention of where we get Jehovah, right? The I am, the self-existent one. You know what God is telling Moses? Nobody props me up. I don't need anybody. I don't have to have anybody. I alone stand on my own merit. I am the one and holy, true God. I am who I am. And then he says, when they say who it is, tell them I am the self-existent God, the God who needs nobody and needs nothing. I am the self-existent God. If you translate this over into the New Testament, when you get to Jesus, when he's talking to him, uh, there's seven I am statements in the book of John, right? In the Gospel of John. I think it's pretty clear when people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. I think he was making it very clear when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and life. He was letting him know that I am that Jehovah God. I am that self-existent one. And I am the one who does not need to be propped up. I don't need any help. I am the God who can do it all, and I will do it all. And I am the one who will do this. And it's just a, a remarkable uh, illustration of God's character, of who he is and his holiness. And that's the main root of who, what God is when his holiness. There's none like God. My seminary professor used to say, when you think about the holiness of God, think of it this way. God is holy and I'm nothing like that. That's what he always say. God is all-powerful, and I am nothing, right? God is all-knowing, and I know nothing. He's like, just contrast it with who you are compared to who God is, and you'll put yourself in perspective really, really quick. And this is what God was driving home to Moses. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It doesn't matter who the nation of Israel is. It doesn't matter who the Egyptians are. It doesn't matter who Pharaoh is. You know what matters? What matters is who Jehovah is. And what matters is who I am, Moses. And you go to them and you tell them, I am this God, and I am the one who will be this self-existent God. And, and Jesus said the same thing, I am the one who is the self-existent God. So, I mean, just a great name that we have of God uh, here found in this verse, and we'll work that out through the rest of the chapters. But I always find it so interesting when God calls us to do something, all we ever see is the obstacles, right? All we ever see is what we can't do. All we ever see is how it's impossible. And I know in the world that we live in today, it's the same way. I've had people tell me after having children how they just think in their minds, I just don't know what kind of world they're going to grow up in, right? I just don't know how God is going to, you know, I just don't, I can't comprehend this. I don't know this. Listen, if you know God, right, if you know the self-existent one, if you know the one who will never leave you nor forsake you, He's going to walk you through everything you go through. He is the self-existent God. And no matter what obstacle you see, if he's called you to do it, it will happen. And I can't tell you how many times in my life and in other people's lives that's walked through this in our church that every time there's an obstacle, if you would just, if you just trust in God, if you just call on the one who can do anything and, and everything, and trust in him. He will walk you through that process every time he will. And so many times we want to give God the excuses. But God says, there's no excuses because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on me. If it depends on me, there is nothing impossible for me. Nothing. And a mighty hand may not be able to get you out of Egypt. But by my mighty hand, you're coming out of Egypt, right? It's going to happen. 
So I hope that encourages you this afternoon as you think about your life. You may be thinking you're in an impossible situation. As long as there's a self-existent Jehovah God, nothing is impossible. He is able to pull and do anything in our lives that's according to his will, and especially when he calls us to do it. So let's pray. We'll talk about this a little bit more, dig deeper into it, and then we'll uh, get to our prayer time as well. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you, Lord. I do thank you for this chapter, Lord. Thank you for the call of God in our lives, Lord. God, I just pray. Maybe if we look to our life and we think, well, God, I've messed up. I've stumbled. I've fallen off the path. God would never use me again. Oh, I think you'd be surprised. Just as Moses was 40 years not walking with God and running from God, the moment he had his opportunity, God spoke to him and called him. And Moses answered with a simple statement, here I am. Maybe tonight, that's what God's looking for you to say. Maybe something in your heart or your life that he's called you to do, and you might have given him every excuse in the book. I can't afford it. I'm too old. I'm too young. I have kids now. I'm married. I'm not married. Whatever it may be. Maybe tonight you'll just look at God and say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I'm ready to do whatever you call me to do. And also, as we as a people, as we walk and live through this world we live in, as we look to this world and how it has fallen apart and how many people are just desperate for the work of God in their lives and desperate for the things of God and they're chasing after everything of the world and sin and flesh and the, and, and the system of the world system just running rampant, Lord, I just pray. That we will be like Moses, that we will stand in the gap, that we will be the ones you will use to reach out, to share, to be able to tell others about Christ, that we know the great I am, and they can know him too. And God, I just pray that we're a faithful witness to those around us, Lord, and that we will begin in our own homes to be a deliverer, just like Moses, for our family, and deliverer in our community, and deliverer in our church. And we will stand in the gap. Say, God, here I am. Use me. However, wherever, and whatever the obstacle it is, God, I will trust in you. You are the self-existent God. You can do anything, Lord. And I pray tonight, as we consider that, as we think about that, that, we'll, that our hearts cry, we'll be like Moses. Lord, use me like you've never used me before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 3. So, 